So let me ask that you turn in your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter uh, 19. Exodus chapter uh, 19. We'll begin in verse 7 and read through the end of the chapter. Um, Let me ask if you're able, uh, would you stand as we read God's Word together? So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the people, to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, uh, come up bringing Aaron with you. Do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever you may be seated you know it's easy enough uh, for us um, to think of the old testament or to even think of the god of the old testament as somehow different from the god of the new testament it's easy for us to think of the old testament as all law and and oppression and difficulty and 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 struggle and um, you know, God doing everything right, and then to think of the New Testament as as all grace, and that um, uh, that God's really in the New Testament more like 
one of us, like one of the guys, and not really all that difficult, not really all that oppressive, not really all that demanding. It's easy for us to think of there being this real sharp distinction, not just in the Testaments themselves, but in who God is and what He's like uh, between uh, Malachi and Matthew. And to be honest with you, this passage contributes to that notion. This passage contributes to that mentality, to that sort of way of thinking, to think of God as a consuming fire in the Old Testament, maybe not so much in the New, even though our New Testament reading just a few minutes ago in Hebrews 12 ended with our God is a consuming fire. Just to remind you quickly how the, the, the beginning of this chapter went, God has, has recounted for Israel uh, His faithfulness to them in bringing them out of Egypt, um, in providing for them in the wilderness, you know, separating the, the sea so they could pass through safely, collapsing the Red Sea again when the Egyptians got there, uh, food, manna, bread in the wilderness, uh, water to drink because the water was bitter um, or absent, defeating the Amalekites when they came and and, uh, attacked the Israelites. God has been recounting for them His faithfulness and then gives them that that if-then statement in verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice, then you shall be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And what we find is God's people respond to God's call to the covenant. Notice how in verses 7 and 8, you do realize at this point, they still haven't heard the conditions of the covenant. They still haven't heard exactly what they are committing to. Um, they still haven't heard the Ten Commandments are, are still yet to come, right? That's still in their future. It's still in our future in terms of preaching through Exodus. All they've heard is if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And yet notice how they respond in verses seven and eight. All the people answered together, verse eight. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They're committing to keep God's word without yet knowing exactly what that word is. They they seem to understand. They seem to, to realize that, yes, God has entered into a covenant with His people, but it's not a covenant of equals. And in fact, The first six verses of this chapter read like they read like reciting a covenant, rehashing the 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 events, the facts of a covenant. God gives sort of a preamble, an explanation of what's gone on and then creates these stipulations and expectations of of covenant faithfulness. That all happens in the first six verses. And the people of Israel realize without knowing what are these expectations going to be, they understand already that this is not a covenant between equals. This is a covenant between a sovereign ruler over 
not just an area of the ancient Near East, but the entire creation who has condescended to them and entered into this relationship with them. They realize that this is the creator and they are just creatures. It's the old vassal suzerain sort of treaty. It's the, the, the greater king conquering the weaker people and then entering into a covenant as though the weaker people really had much choice. God's entered into this covenant relationship with His people as a sovereign king, as a sovereign ruler, and they understand that He's infinitely greater than they are. Even our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, says this, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have any fruition of Him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He has been pleased to express by the covenant. The, the gap, the, the gap between creator and creature is so great that the only way for the creature to enjoy any relationship at all with the creator is for the creator to condescend to him. And that's without even mentioning rebellion and sin. That's just a, the nature of creation. And so, God's people here in Exodus 19, respond with a commitment. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Whatever those covenant commitments might be, we will do them. And, and you notice even the corporate nature of this commitment. All the people answered together. There's a commitment of the people on the whole, as a whole, to follow and serve God as their king and ruler. You know, and they're, it's popular in some circles to say that there's really no need for us to talk about our obedience. Uh, there are circles out there that, that say that really all you, you know, you can't obey anyway and, and it's really... There's no reason to talk about obedience. What you really need more than anything in the world is just to remember your justification, to remember the fact that Jesus has obeyed for you. He has kept the law for you and that we're saved by his obedience and not our own. And that is absolutely true. We're saved by his obedience and not our own. And yet scripture over and over again calls us to obedience. It calls us to follow Christ and his commands this is already redeemed people being called to commit to god's covenant commands and it's in that context that they make this commitment of course you and i have the clarity of the rest of exodus you and i have the clarity of the rest of the old testament we know 
that somewhere in their future is this golden calf that's just going to happen to come out of the fire. You know, you throw a bunch of gold into a fire and it out comes this calf. And God's people are worshiping it. We know that, that Assyria will come and defeat Israel. We know that Babylon will come and scatter Judah and take them into exile precisely because they don't keep the covenant commands that they just committed to keeping. But they still commit. Our, our lack of ability doesn't absolve us of the responsibility they understand that the, the pathway of obedience is the pathway of blessing. In fact, we probably should have sung, um, uh, Oh God, Beyond All Praising. I think it's hymn 660. Uh, the second verse uh, of the hymn goes, Then hear, O gracious Savior, accept the love we bring, that we who know your favor may serve you as our king. You have to get that order right. We already know your favor. Now, therefore, let us serve you as our king. And whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, we'll triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still, to marvel at your beauty and glory in your ways and make a joyful duty our sacrifice of praise. God's redeemed people commit to obeying his voice. And they don't even know the conditions of the covenant yet. You think to yourself, that's crazy. Nobody signs a contract without at least knowing what they're signing. Well, except everyone who's ever come to saving faith in Christ. Think back on your life. Think back through some of the trials that you've endured precisely because you're a believer. Would you have signed up if you'd known that was coming? Would you have said, yes, I'm in, if you had known the trials that were coming as a, a consequence, as a direct consequence directly correlated to the fact that you're a professing believer? We come to saving faith and we're excited and we're happy for this new relationship we have with Christ and we're excited to try to gather others into the kingdom with us, not knowing where he just might take us. Every believer ever has committed to keeping his covenant commands without knowing where he would take them. He's called us to obey his voice. He's called us to follow him. And so we see their, their covenant commitment um, in light of his call to obedience. And then you notice we see God's people preparing to meet God on this mountain. God says, look, I'm, I'm going to come meet with you. Okay, I guess technically he's coming to meet with Moses. The people are going to be down around uh, the mountain. But part of the point, verse 9, is that when God speaks with Moses, they may know that this is God speaking with Moses. And they, the people, will know to follow Moses because he's speaking as a prophet. He's speaking God's word to God's people. But notice everything that God that they have to go through before this meeting. They've got two days. And on the third day, God's going to come down on the mountain to meet with Moses um, 
kind of in the presence of all of Israel. And notice what they're supposed to be doing. So verse 10. God tells Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. So the people are to be consecrated. That word, by the way, is a verb form of, of holy. It's be holified. You got two days to holify the people. All right, from now on, I'm no longer reading consecrated. I'm saying holified. Um, because I just think that sounds... But it's the same, it's the same word uh, that we get in Isaiah 6 when uh, Isaiah sees and hears holy, holy, holy. This is a verb form of that word. It's the recognition that we, in order to come into God's presence to be His people, are set apart from and we're set apart to. We're set apart from the rest of the world, but we're set apart to God. And, and because of that, because we're being sanctified, holified, consecrated, um, we're, we're, they're being prepared to meet with God on the mountain. And part of this consecration also means washing their clothes, verse 10. Okay. You, you have a laundry basket in your bathroom, your closet. Somewhere in your house you have what we call a laundry basket. And there, it's always full, right? I mean, it's always kind of heaped up over the top. And part of that is because you have so many clothes. Uh, part of that is because you really don't want to wash them. But, but when it comes to washing clothes, all we have to do is carry this basket to a machine and, and throw the clothes in this machine with water and soap and we walk away. And we come back when the bell rings or the... It dings or the song plays. Depends on how old your machine is. The buzzer goes off. And we take them out and we put them in another machine and it gets them dry. And we push a button and then we leave again. Okay, they didn't have that luxury. They don't have the luxury of... Remember, they, they, they came from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And they've now been two and a half, three months or so in the wilderness. Um, they're not carrying, you know, camelback backpacks with water to drink and plenty of room for their stuff when they go hiking. Um, they've got to wash what they've got and what they've got isn't much. And, And when you take 2 million people to wash clothes in what little bit of water they can find, it's going to take two days, but there's work involved there's preparation and, and work and labor and sweat. And there's no, there's no Maytag man. That, that's the guy, right? There's, there's no dude. You can't put the, their clothes in the washing machine and then come back uh, and get them later. So there's work and, and thought and preparation that goes into meeting with God. But you do realize why we wear clothes. Right? I mean, we wear clothes because we're ashamed. 
We wear clothes because of the fall. In Genesis 3, at the end of Genesis 2, Adam and Eve didn't have on clothes. And neither one of them cared. It didn't matter. Sin enters creation. They, they disobey God. They take the forbidden fruit. They eat. They enjoy it. And then all of a sudden they care. And at the end of chapter 3, God kills an animal and makes clothes for them to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. God was the first tailor in all of Scripture. We wear clothes because of sin. You're washing your clothes in whatever body of water you can find, preparing to meet God. You're being reminded all over again, I'm doing this because I'm not worthy to meet with this God. And in that sense, the clothes even represent your own heart. I'm not just washing clothes. I'm not just preparing my clothes to meet God. I'm preparing myself. Because I've got to deal with these dirty sin cover-uppers. And I've got to wash my sin cover-uppers because I'm a sinner. Oh, that's right. That probably means I shouldn't be meeting with Him anyway. It's only of His grace that He's coming down to this mountain and inviting me to participate in this. Now look, I... It is common, and we do this here, and I'm totally cool with this, right? It is common for churches to say, come as you are. And I get it. We mean, we don't care what you wear. And guess what? We don't care what you wear. But we don't come as we are. It it actually involves some amount of preparation. It involves some amount of recognizing that I'm only here by God's grace. That's why we have a confession of sin. And that's why we have a confession of sin so early in our worship service. Because we need to recognize that I'm only here because of His grace and because of who Christ is and what He has done for me. Perhaps we would do well to remember that we're meeting with a God who is a consuming fire. That we've been invited into the presence. You say, well, wait, that's Old Testament. That's, that was Hebrews 12. We've been invited into his presence, then that's all of his grace. And so God's people prepare, consecrating themselves, washing their clothes, preparing to meet with God on this mountain. And it's not just the people who are being prepared. Notice the orange cones. Uh, Moses had orange traffic cones. In verse 12, uh, you shall set limits for the people all around, meaning all around the mountain, saying you're not allowed to go up the mountain. If you or an animal, um, you know, if your if your pet iguana gets away and runs up on the mountain, it is to be stoned. It is to be shot through, not, not with a rifle. They didn't have rifles then. Um, and so Moses put orange traffic cones around the bottom of uh, Mount Sinai, so that people wouldn't cross that line or the the white chalk line. It's the right field line. This side of the line, you're okay. That side of the line, uh, you have to be put to death. In fact, later in the chapter, look down at verse 23. Did you notice? Moses said to the Lord, the people can't come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. Same word. Holify the mountain. 
It's the exact same word used of the people and of the mountain itself. And so there's preparation for meeting with God before the meeting finally takes place. And we see this meeting in verses 16 to 20. And all of creation reacts when the creator of heaven and earth comes down to that mountain. Thunders, not thunder, thunders, not lightning, but lightnings, the plural of something that's really kind of already plural. Like it's rare. I mean, we can say lightning and mean one strike, but we also say lightning and mean multiple strikes. And this is lightnings is this is this is. A, this perpetual, constant lightning and thunder going on around the mountain. There's fire and smoke, which for the rest of the first five books of the Bible are going to be a, a picture of God's presence with His people as He leads them a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so there's no way for God's people to, to think, well, maybe this is something else going on. No, it's intended to portray to them, God has come down to this mountain. In fact, the earth it, itself was shaking. Until finally there's a trumpet blast. The sound of the arrival of a king because God's about to give His commands. He's about to issue His edicts to His people not as a means of salvation, but as evidence for how we might live to honor and glorify Him. Why, why so much noise? Why so much shaking? Why so much volume? Why so much thunderses and lightningses? Well, because in verse 9, the, the people are supposed to know this really is the Lord of heaven and earth who has come down to meet with his people, with Moses, with his people, kind of both. And so that they might know, oh, that's right, when Moses speaks, when, when Moses comes to us with a message from God, he really has a message from Like he's not making it up. God is, is confirming to the people, this is my mouthpiece. This is my prophet. This is the one who brings my word to you. I have a vivid memory of the only time I've ever been seasick in my life. Okay, hold on. You're like, well, that could be one time. I grew up with a beach house. Um, my dad, I have no idea if my dad, um, I should probably ask him. I have no idea if my dad liked deep sea fishing as much as I did. All I know is we were on the boat every day. Like, I didn't spend time at the beach house. I didn't spend time on the beach. I don't know what to do on a beach, like with sand. It's like this, you know, I don't know what to do. Give me a boat and, and no sight of land. One time in my life, I got seasick. We were in my, our next door neighbor's boat. It was us, our family, and, and another family, and, and him. And we got caught in a storm. And they made the kids go down in the cabin. And there was one guy who was already struggling. He had a bucket. Somebody else needed that bucket once we got down in the cabin. And I came really, really close. 
It's the only time I've ever... And it wasn't... It was, it was the combination of the stale bucket air in the cabin and the storm. I still now, and even the other day, was thinking about this and thinking, I should have just gone back out there and said, y'all, deal with it. I'm better out here. Trust me, it's fine. Um, but the storm... We remember when we're in serious, loud, scary, earth-shaking storms. You've, you've lived through tornadoes in this area and you can be back there in a moment. You can remember the sound, the sight, the color, the stuff landing in your yard. You remember this. These people will never forget you don't, you don't etch this out of your... You don't erase this. You don't etch things out of anyone. You don't erase this out of your memory ever. And that's part of the point. That's exactly what God wanted His people to hear and to know and to remember. That God really has condescended to meet with His people. And that Moses has the full backing of the creator of heaven and earth. Not because of who Moses is, but because of the message he brings. There's something I want you to else something else I want you to notice from this passage. There's a, a thread. There's a thread that runs um, uh, throughout all of, of chapter 19 that actually runs for chapters and chapters to come. Um and it's, it's unclear. It, it's a couple of trips, two, three trips that Moses has to make up. And I don't know how tall, I, I should have looked. I don't know how tall Mount Sinai is. Uh, you, you hike a mountain two or three or four times. Uh, go up, meet with God, come back down, tell the people something. Go back up, meet with God. Oh, come back down, tell the people again. Go back up. And it, it, There seem to be three trips that, that Moses makes. But just notice verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. So that's, that's, a, that's a back down after already going up once. And you see in verse 8, all that the, the Lord has, has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, here's what's going to happen. And then Moses had to go and tell the people. There's several of those. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through uh, to look and many of them perish. And, and Moses says in verse 23, I mean, God, you already told us this. And it seems he comes back down again to tell them one more time. Did, do you notice the thread? We need a mediator. The thread is we need somebody between us and the creator Redeemer, the creator of heaven and earth, the redeemer of God's people. We need someone to fill that gap. We need someone to come from him to us and us to him. We need someone to serve as prophet, bringing his word to us and priest, taking our sin and guilt and shame back to him. 
in all of this, there's one person serving as a mediator between God and man. We need a mediator. And you do realize our mediator had a very similar experience. Remember when he took um, Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. And he transfigured into this bright white. And, and there's, there he is, Peter and James and John see Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. And do you remember they were they're on the mountain and it shook and there was a cloud and a voice from the cloud that said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus had this same experience. Why? So that you and I might look to him as our mediator and not to Moses so that we might look to the better covenant that Hebrews 12 just told us about so that we might. Look to the one who, whose, whose blood solves all the problems of, of lambs and bulls and goats. So that we might look to the one who brings this kingdom that cannot be shaken. So that we might come to this better covenant. So that we might not be tied to a particular place where we have to worship God here in Exodus 19, it's on this mountain. It'll become the temple. This mountain is kind of like a pre-temple temple, a pre-tabernacle. Well, it's not a tabernacle. You can't move it. It's a pre-temple temple of sorts. But in Christ, we have we're not tied to a place. We worship God wherever we are. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit and where two or three are gathered. There he is in the midst of them. And we come to a better covenant. Not mediated by Moses, but mediated by Christ. Whose, whose life was full obedience in our place because we cannot, and whose blood was shed far better than the lamb of the blood of lambs and goats and bulls and the better covenant. The new kingdom, the kingdom that cannot be shaken, the kingdom sealed in the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have this table set before us this morning uh, that reminds us that uh, you have come to uh, bring a kingdom uh, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that cannot be destroyed, a kingdom that uh, yet once more, when you shake heavens and earth, this is the kingdom that will remain. Uh, we thank you that it's a kingdom um, by which we join through your blood, through your obedience, through your sacrificial atoning death. The blood of the new covenant sealed in your work. And so we pray that we would commit to following you. Grant us the grace, uh, the strength, the desire for that matter. Uh, to want to love you. To glorify and enjoy you. Uh, to commit to the covenant promises, the covenant commands that you've given us. And we thank you for loving us, for coming to us. Uh, not just as far as the top of a mountain, but coming to us in flesh and blood. 
And Lord Jesus, redeeming that which has, we have dragged into rebellion. Uh, would you grant us uh, strength of faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.